beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 117, the smallest, shortest chapter in the entirety of the Bible, I pray that it begins to speak to us and then call us to something greater and more majestic. Verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. We are faced with a choice in this particular psalm because of the first word and the last word. I showed you the last couple of weeks that this is uh, a collection of psalms from about Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 called the Halal Psalms. That is, there were songs that were meant to be uh, used to, to praise God and as they were remembered how God had delivered all of his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And these would have been the psalms that would have been sung before and after the Passover was celebrated. In fact, when we see the Gospels tell us that Jesus instituted a new covenant in his blood and, and instituted a new celebration of Passover through what we call the Lord's Supper or communion or the, the Eucharist, the body and the blood of Christ for us, it says in the Gospels that they sang a hymn and went away. And the odds are incredibly high that he would have sang with those other people. They would have meditated upon either this one or one of the other psalms that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. And I want you to realize the first and last word there, praise the Lord, is a command. It's the word, and we sang it several times today, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now what's important about this word is that it demands something. And the response I want to ask you to consider today is this. Will you be obedient or disobedient to God? Will you be obedient, submit your own will and life to God, or will you be disobedient, and will you rebel against Him like your father Adam and every other ancestor you have? Will you obey or disobey? Because you might say, well, that's, those are harsh words. Where did you get that? Well, the tense here, the case, the, the structure of the word hallelujah is for other, all of you grammar nerds, I want to invite you in this today. It's imperative. Imperative. That means it is a command. So when you say hallelujah, we talked about like if you're like, oh, thank, you know, thank God I got, a, I got a great parking spot. Hallelujah. You, you might not necessarily be using that word rightly. It's imperative. That is a command. In fact, the more, more correct way to say the word hallelujah is, is with a, a, like consternation in the sense that it's, you're telling someone what to do. So for example, the best way I know how to translate hallelujah or praise the Lord to you is with my finger, and it's to point at you and then like make an angry face, right? This is how I would translate this. Praise the Lord. No, 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 don't giggle. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You get it? It felt different that time, didn't it? Right? Like, whoa, whoa, that feels like you're imposing upon you, upon me. I know, exactly. That's what this psalm is. It is a command it's not an invitation. It's not a suggestion. It is the writer being inspired to look across the people around him. Even we see here the nations and peoples of the earth and shout out, what an arrogant thing to do, right? 
Praise the Lord. No, seriously. Praise the Lord. And so when we say hallelujah, I want you to know in the back of your mind, you're not just responding to something. You, you, you are telling someone what to do. Now, as is the case with most of the Psalms, you might be telling your own soul what to do, right? Oh, why, soul, are you downcast? Rejoice in the Lord. Hear the words of David, like kind of giving his own soul a pep talk, right? That, that, that could also be the command. I know it is for me. I know that command should be at me, like praise the Lord. No, seriously, praise the Lord. And I'm like, but I have all these things. Praise the Lord, seriously. So it's a command. And so as we dig through some of these terms, and what is a very small, short psalm, I want you to begin to even realize this psalm demands a response. You'll either obey or you'll rebel. What I want to conclude our summer of spending time in the psalms with here is the massive scope of praise that is not only suggested and not only offered out as an invitation, but in this case is a command. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. We've got to define some terms here. As we've seen here, for the last couple of weeks, these psalms of praise, and praise can look different. Praise can even be lament. Praise can even be crying out to God in suffering. Praise like Jesus would have quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hearkening back to the rest of that psalm, which said, my father, my grandmother, or my ancestors, they hoped in the Lord, surely you will deliver. And so we have found this kind of praise stirs up something in us. We're meant to believe and receive this gift that our hope and comfort is in who God is and what God has done. Our rest is in him. Our sense of satisfaction and contentment is in him. And this is where I want to encourage you, like, beware. This means that the thing you are currently hoping in, the thing you are currently resting in, the thing that you are currently finding your sense of contentment and satisfaction in, I love you so I'm going to say this, it will fail. In fact, right now, it is in the process of failing. And you know it. The thing that you've been working on, this is going to be the answer. This is going to solve all my problems, right? This degree, this job, this promotion, this marriage, this boyfriend, this girlfriend, this, this is the thing. I've been wanting this. I just want to encourage you because I love you. It's going to fail. It's going to fail catastrophically. And I want to encourage you because in the end, it wasn't ever meant to carry your weight. It wasn't ever meant to. Your job was never meant to be the person and work of God. Your spouse is never meant to be Jesus. Your promotion, your achievement, your, God help you, your family isn't even meant to be your hope and rest. And those things will crumble and it will rob you of rest. It will rob you of comfort until you find the everlasting and infinitely valuable comfort in God alone. I just want you to know that. So when it all crumbles, when it all falls apart, no one's going to say, I told you so. We're going to say, me too. And we're going to say, look, thank, thank God that he's ripping these idols from our own hands so that we can see a greater treasure. A treasure, mind you, that it reaches beyond even our own personal hope and our own personal satisfaction, commanded here in verse 1 of Psalm 117. For example, this is what I want to push here in this psalm. God has, in Jesus Christ, esteemed us 
with a gift of the highest cost. So we join all the nations of the earth in granting him the highest glory. God has esteemed us with what he has done for us and granted to us in Jesus Christ so highly a thing that we now join the nations. In fact, we see here, command the nations to give him the highest glory. I want to define some terms. It's praise the Lord. So it's an imperative. So right off the bat, this isn't just a suggestion. This, like, this psalm like, imposes upon you, right? It encroaches upon your will. Right? If, if you walked in this place and you're like, I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, it already goes, nope. And it tells you what to do. And that's a big deal. I always want to point that out because in a highly westernized society, remember our, our heroes say things like, give me liberty or give me death. Right? This already kind of, kind of like pokes at that, doesn't it? Like, no, no, you... You do what God wants you to do. So it pokes at us, praise the Lord, commands, and says all nations, all the nations. And then it says extol him all peoples. So two terms to define there. The first one is extol. I don't know how often you use the word extol. I use it never. But it simply means to praise or exalt enthusiastically. As if praise wasn't enough. It's like, no, seriously, with 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 a sense of ecstatic worship, like with a sense of exuberance, with a sense of enthusiasm, that's the kind of worship. Extol, that have, have enthusiasm, have excitement, have emotional investment, have intellectual boundaries crossed for the sake of something that seems outrageous. Go crazy. We're going to come back to that. And it says all peoples. Now this is an ironic kind of a word. Um, this is really interesting. I was listening, and I'll, I'll quote John Piper a couple times here, an author and pastor, and, uh, and he shares a really interesting thing in, in a sermon he preached. And he says, uh, after he preached a sermon, uh, and he said, quoting the Psalms, peoples specifically, uh, a little girl came up to him and said, is peoples a word? And it's interesting because while I was listening to a John Piper sermon in which he used the word peoples, because I do that, we're, we're nerds like that, my daughter in the back seat, in a less kind fashion, says, that's not a word. <laughs> Peoples is not a word. And it, and it encouraged what I want to encourage you with you. Like, this is what I, when you dig into really profound and deep theology, your spell checker freaks out. Okay? Like Christocentric or hypostatic union. Like these things, again, you're like, what? Like you go into these areas and, and your, your spell checker can't help you anymore. Because you're in a whole other place, right? You're in a whole, you're thinking about concepts that are theological in nature and complex to a degree that your spell checker can't help. In fact, my daughter agrees. Peoples is not a word. And so it stirs up a, a really frank and important conversation, a theological one in nature. So I don't necessarily want you to use the word peoples again. You don't have to. But I want you to know what it's talking about. Quite literally, it's talking about sociopolitical in the nations, but sociolinguistic groups amongst the peoples. The way that maybe would be better to talk about is people groups. And so I encourage you, Google things like the Joshua Project, uh, Google resources, and where you just Google the words people groups, and you'll find that we're not just necessarily talking about nation states, but we're talking about ethnic groups, groups of people that are linked with a sense of common language and common culture, so much so that they are distinct. 
Elsewhere, like the King James and other translations will say the word tribes. But the word tribes isn't necessarily helpful for us because we're talking about groups of people that the word tribes doesn't quite encapsulate for us. We're talking about groups of people anywhere from a couple hundred thousand to millions. That's the peoples we're talking. And there are multiple of these groups. In fact, what we come to find out, and the the, the precision here is different depending on how you define the difference between dialects and depending on the difference you find between use of language and culture, there are 16,000 or at least 16,000 people groups or peoples in the world. And at the very least, 6,700 of them are unreached. They're unreached in that they have not only not heard that there is hope in Christ, they have not heard the gospel of what God has done for them. They have not heard of the hope that is available to them in Jesus Christ, but they don't even have access to it. These ethno-linguistic groups represent 7 point, excuse me, 4.3 billion of the over 7 million people in the world. billion. Anywhere from six to 7,000 of these people, these groups have never heard the gospel and they don't even have access to it. I want to show what that means. There's a difference between an unreached people group and what we would say is maybe an uh, an unchristian or maybe just lost or we would unengaged might be the word. So for example, the the language that we want to talk about here is the mission that we now have, the mission that we are commanded to be involved in in Psalm 117 for the sake of the glory of God amongst the nations, amongst all peoples. And we would call that the mission of God, the missio dei, if you will, the mission that's picked up by Jesus to break in all the nations to this, this family. Rather than this one family of Jews to be kind of an isolated and insulated bunch, Jesus does something and he breaks in all of the nations and invites them all to this massive feast, all for the glory of God. And we would call that God's mission, the mission of Jesus, and thereby the body of Christ, the church, the mission of the church, for the sake of the glory of Jesus. We're called to make disciples, and that's why that if you notice the, the, the last thing that Jesus commands in, in the Gospel of Matthew, therefore, since all authority has been given unto me under heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of what? All the nations. All the nations. What's he quoting? This psalm. He's quoting psalms like this. And in essence, the command that you have at the beginning and the end of Psalm 117 is the command that Jesus leaves with his disciples. You'll be witnesses. You're going to receive God's Spirit. Wait here, and when you do... Then go be witnesses to Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Everybody. Your neighbors, the people you don't like, people you don't want to go see, and even the people on the ends of the earth. It's all connected. And this mission isn't just to people who are unengaged or unbelievers, but it's also to people who are unreached. Make sure you understand there are two facets to this mission. You are a missionary, first of all, in the first facet. Right? So... You have to stop for a moment and think in terms of this mission is not going to be accomplished by professionals. This mission is going to be is going to be accomplished by believers. And so if you find yourself thinking like, what's a missionary? Go look in the mirror, because if you believe in the gospel and have been empowered with this great joy and filled with God's spirit, you are now an ambassador 
Well, you think, well, that's, that's the priest's job. That's the pastor's job. No, we find out what the doctrine we would call the priesthood of all believers, quotes multiple places in the New Testament, where what? What has Jesus now done for us? He has created from the nations, a what? A priesthood, a holy nation for the glory of God amongst the nations. You, you are a missionary. And his first asset, you, this, this command for the nations to glorify God by what he's done for us, that is your responsibility in the first aspect. And that is to your neighbors, people who don't know Jesus, people who don't currently worship God. That's your responsibility. But then there's the other category that I just mentioned, and that's the unreached people. And that's where there's another type of missionary we would talk about, a missionary that crosses a culture, a missionary that leaves the comforts of home, that crosses the culture to learn language, to learn culture, and to cross that culture for the sake of reaching people with the gospel. And it's important to define that category because most of the people would say well okay but shouldn't we let local christians do that shouldn't we let christians there who already speak that language share that gospel shouldn't we let churches in that area in that region share the gospel with their neighbors just like you and i are called to share the gospel with our neighbors shouldn't we let local christians local believers do that here's the problem there are no local Christians. There are no local churches. That's what makes these people groups unreached. They have a monumentally high, like a monumentally high uh, likelihood of never, ever encountering a Christian for their entire life. Never. I saw one stat that showed it. Like they're, you know, there's something like, they're like this monumental astronomic number like, so many more times likely to, to see and taste Coca-Cola than they are to hear the gospel. So global is the mission and reach of Coca-Cola. But those people, even though you may share a Coke with, fill in the blank of, I don't know, 4.3 billion people, you're more likely to share a Coke with those 4.3 billion people than you are for someone to share the gospel with them. There aren't local Christians. There aren't local churches. And so it's incumbent upon us then to invest in creative and innovative ways to get the gospel to people that otherwise will never hear it. Never hear it. They'll never know that there's hope. They'll never know that there's a redeemer. They'll never know that there is a faithfulness of the Lord that endures forever. And that's been entrusted to you and to me. An unreached people group is a group of people, one of the 7, 000, six to 7,000 people groups that will never have access to the gospel. And you'll say, well, well, is that a Western concern? Should we be the ones that send missionaries to those areas? Well, I'll just push it back on you this way. It might be. Sometimes crossing monumental gaps in between cultures wins access to people better than crossing small gaps. If you don't believe me, uh, there are people within our people group right now that don't even like talking to each other, okay? So right now, if you would identify, I'm just, uh, you know, whatever, I'm not going to single you out. But if you would say you're a Southerner, for example, there's a sense in which even in, even in the same people group that is American people, you're in a whole other world, right? Sometimes different, different language, different words. If you're a Midwesterner, even then you're like, mm, I don't know. These are different categories of people. And if those little gaps are, are hard to cross for us, how, how much more difficult might it be for people groups to cross? So I'm, here again, I'm not talking about nation states, even though it is mentioned nations at the beginning. We're talking about people groups that even exist within each nation, nation state. 
thing, people like the Baloch, the Wei, the Han, the Hmong. These, these are people groups that exist across the world, and there are 7,000 of them. And they are distinct from their neighbors by, by language, by dialect, by different cultural values, and even, just like us, geography. So, we make up Western countries a very small portion of unreached people. And one of the most amazing things that could possibly happen has happened in the 20th century. And the goal here is not to win someone over to just simply a tightly held set of beliefs. The goal here, I want you to reorient this in mission. The purpose of the church is, you see here in verse 1 and verse 2, it's praise. In his seminal work, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper says it this way. This has been a helpful reorientation of the mission of God for me. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. you got to get that. The glory that God deserves is the ultimate goal. The mission that we are on serves the glory that God deserves. God has earned it. God is worthy of it. And here's the thing. God is already doing it. God's already doing it. You see, this is a global gospel. You see this in this psalm better than anywhere else. It's a global gospel. And I want to, there's a, a, a Christian historian, Andrew F. Walls, who, who marks across this, one of the most important things that's happened um, in his book, The Cross-Cultural Process of Christian History. And he describes something that happened in the 20th century that no one else was paying attention to. Most, especially, Christians. It's a global gospel. It says that, he says that the 20th century has seen this great recession from the Christian faith, that is, people that would have called themselves Christian at the beginning of the, Christian, of, of the 20th century, have receded, have pulled back. Fewer people in Western society, America, would call themselves Christian. So the 20th century has seen a great recession from the Christian faith in the West. There has been an equally massive accession, that is a procession, a proceeding, to the faith in the non-Western world. At the beginning of the 20th century, well over 80% of those who professed Christianity lived in Europe or North America. Don't miss that. Eight out of ten people who were Christians lived in Europe or North America. Now, 60% or around 60% of people who identify as Christian live in the southern continents of the world. Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Pacific. And that proportion is growing. Christianity began the 20th century as a strictly Western religion. And indeed, it was the Western religion. But the 20th century ended with Christianity being primarily a non-Western religion. And it is on track to become progressively more and more so. Uh, (laughs) uh, Not long ago, I shared this with some of you, I got a chance to uh, met someone in our city, got to share the gospel with them, kind of, here's my hope in Christ. And, and as is, is common, is think of the parable of the sower. You throw out the seeds, and some people hear it, some people don't. Uh, three out of four times, not. Uh, and got a chance to share the gospel, and for some reason, this really just rocked me. This person was not rece- didn't want to hear it. It was like, that's absurd, or, or kind of like, oh, it, it was more like, how cute for you. Oh, you, like, you believe in Santa Claus. Oh, how cute, right? It was kind of that condescending. I was like, well, that's not going to get us anywhere. 
Um, and it just really, really, I don't know if you're like me, you kind of like often battle anxiety and depression. And I was just like really in a funk. I was like, nobody, nobody wants to believe Jesus. And I became so insulated. And that was interesting because I was discouraged. Like no one wants to believe in Jesus. Um, and I forgot about all of you. <laughs> in that mo- I mean, in that moment, I at least wasn't thinking about all the people I know and love within my own congregation. But I was completely oblivious to the fact that while that may be the case, maybe more and more people are rejecting the gospel that you and I know, more and more people that we'll never even meet or never even see, who speak languages completely different than ours, are receiving the gospel, believing it, and their lives and their nations are being changed by it. As, as the Western world, as Americans go, we're too smart for this. We've, you know, because that, that's what imperialism does, right? We, well, we know better than you, right? And, 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 and as that begins to recede and the Christian faith recedes in the West, I want you to be encouraged. Be encouraged. There's something amazing that's going on here. Because if you will not be obedient to this command, God will make it happen without you. God will do this. <laughs> he does not need your permission. And if American Christians, if the Western world decides it does not want to receive the gospel or exalt Jesus or take this gospel to the nations, God's like, fine, I'll do it without you. Did you catch that? Eight out of ten Christians lived in Europe or North America at the beginning of the 20th century. By the end of the 20th century, less than half were in Europe or North America, and almost two-thirds of the Christians in the world live in, like, below the equator in the southern continents of the world. Oh, friend, don't moan. Don't, 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 don't like weep or mourn. God is doing this. And he's going he's gonna to be glorified among the nations. We're just invited to participate. And it's a beautiful thing that this histori- historian points out. Because God's going to do this. Uh, we talked about this uh, even recently. This, this is one of my most, the most powerful illustrations of this. Um, so last year, Anglican Christians, now Anglican historically speaking, is the Church of England. I'll get to that. So Anglican Christians um, in Nigeria, Uganda, and Kenya imposed sanctions on Western European and American Christians to uphold a more stringent sexual ethic. You got to get this. You got to catch this, okay? There are more than 50 million Anglican Christians in Africa. There, there are a little over 2 million Anglican Christians in Europe and North America. Think about that. Just think. Whenever the Church of England, right? This is what God does when you try to make this about your nation, right? He's like, oh yeah? <laughs> Watch this, right? And, and this, is, this is bizarre because they've been fighting over like sexual ethics in the Anglican Church for the last 20 years. And last year, in 2016, Anglican Christians, bishops, got together and they imposed sanctions upon European and American Anglicans for, for not upholding a more stringent biblical sexual ethic. Oh, friend, God's going to do this. He doesn't need your permission. And if you don't think you're going to participate, the nations will be the one that come back and they'll be the one that rebuke you. That's the beauty we see in the New Testament. We see like, it says, we find that if we aren't going to glorify God, it says even the rocks will cry out. If the rocks don't, a dead, lifeless creature doesn't make fun of you for obeying this command, the nations will. And because God's going to do this, and here's what I want to encourage you. I'm not talking about something one day, oh, God's good. No, he's already doing it. It's already happening. I mean, 
marvel at maybe what we would think of as a megachurch in the United States, but realize that represents about a third. As big as it may seem, that represents a measly third of what God is doing amongst the nations. Look, you can outgrow a biblical adoration of God. You can worship the creation if you want. But Romans 1 tells us what will happen. God will let us go, and he'll move on without us. God's wrath over us in this particular area isn't that he will punish us. In fact, that's his grace. His wrath is that he will leave us. I mean, think about that. You know that. If my child reaches for the hot stove, wrath isn't to yell and punish, right? That's not wrath. That's love. Like, don't, no, please don't. That will hurt. That's compassion. That's actually mercy and grace towards my child. Wrath would be if I saw my daughters reaching towards something dangerous, like a hot stove, or like my daughters going towards something like traffic. Wrath would be as if I said, good luck. And all I'll know to tell you is if we won't jump in on this, then we will experience God's wrath in this area. And it won't be the kind of punishment like you think. It will just be that God will do it without us, like he is currently doing. There's a powerful thing going on here. God desires praise not because he needs it, but because we need it. And we will be unsatisfied and discontent until we do. So I want to end on this. I don't want to guilt you into praising Jesus. I don't want to guilt you into praising God. That won't get you anywhere. But instead, what I want to do is what this text does is it begins to win you over and to say that God is worth it. Notice the second phrase, it says, so for great is his steadfast love toward us. So praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all the peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us. There's two components to this that I want you to see, and I want to show you how worthy God is of your praise. It says, in the faithfulness of the Lord, it endures forever. Great is his steadfast love toward us. Now, that at first glance, I hope that kind of catches your attention. If I was like, praise Jesus, why? Because again, it's for, it's like a therefore, because in verse 2. And so if I was like, praise God, and you were like, why? And I said, because he loves me. That would seem strange, right? If I said, you, you praise Jesus, right? You praise the Lord, right? And, and you're like, why? And I would say, because he loves me. And you would think what the right thing would say is because he loves you, because he has steadfast love for you. But there's something going on here that seems counterintuitive, and I want you to see it. The first component it is that he's hearkening back to the promise of God in Genesis chapter 12, where we find something amazing that, God grants a promise to Abram, and he says, look, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do something for you. In verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so he's saying, praise God. Why? Because our God keeps his promises. This this." small little infinitesimal people, this people of Israel saying to the nations, praise our God. Why? Why should we praise God? Because our God has ordained that he would bring about the praise of all the people and he would use it through fulfilling a promise through us. Our God is generous. He doesn't just bless people for their own sake. He always blesses people to be a conduit. He blesses to be a blessing. And so he says, look, praise God because he's using us to give blessing to you. See the implicit declaration of the gospel there. Our God keeps promises. Doesn't abandon his people. But the second thing going on there, he says, praise God, 
for his great, for greatest his steadfast love toward us. Again, because that would be weird, right? Like, praise God, why? Because he loves me. The second component is that you, you begin to capture the vastness of God's love when it's demonstrated for people who deserve it the least. I want you to hear like this enduring, me, um, enduring mercy for people who don't deserve it. Paul quotes this in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. He says, This saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance. Here, this you should memorize. Right? If, if I, when you start, when you, when you frame a statement that way, what I'm about to say is worthy of full acceptance. This is what he says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The enduring mercy of God for his people is best displayed when those people really don't deserve it. And there's a miracle here. They say, look, praise God, extol him, people. Why? Because he loves us. Have you met us? I mean, really, you looked at us? We are a defunct people. We're prone to to supremacy of the self. We're prone to racist and nationalistic and militaristic tendencies. Have you met us? We're awful. But oh, you should praise God because what an amazing and loving God that he would love someone like us. Oh, friend, here's the temptation some people have. They're like, oh, I'm just, I'm afraid. You, know, you hear this all the time, like, I'm a bad person. And, and they want you to, like, goad you into saying, no, you're not. That's not true. You're, you're worse than you think. You're worse than you think. And that actually is the beautiful and fertile seedbed of the gospel. Oh, here's a trustworthy saying worth remembering. God loves sinners, the worst of them. Oh, you want to get into that category. Right? Like, like if Jesus saves the foremost, the worst of the sinners, you don't want to avoid that category. You want to jump in that category. Like if here's the not too bad sinners and here's the worst of worst sinners, you don't want to jump in this category. You want to be like, I'm in this one. If Jesus saves these, I want these. And so we don't avoid that. We don't diminish that. In fact, it's the ground of worship. It says, great is his steadfast love towards me. Friend, I hope you hear this on a regular basis. Hopefully every week you hear me say how good God is. But the implicit nature of that statement is that if you really knew me, if you really knew me, I mean like in the deep, dark, awful pit of my own soul. If you really knew me, you'd realize what an amazing blessing that is for me to say. I don't want you to be guilted into loving Jesus. I want you to see he's worth it. He's worth it. If he would empty the wealth and treasure of his matchless goodness for the sake of someone like me when I was the enemy, while I was dead in my trespasses, friend, he's worth it. You can trust him. I promise, if he can save someone like me, I promise you. If he can grant hope, if he can grant rest for someone who's restless and angry and militant like me, then friend, there is no telling what he could do for you. And that's the grounds of our worship. What if he changes his mind? I'm glad you asked. The second phrase tells us, faithfulness of the Lord, what? Endures when? Forever. What if he finds out how messed up I am? Oh, he knows. And his love endures forever. Don't miss what an amazing proclamation of good news this is. Our God saves the least, the last, the lost, because that's just what he likes to do. 
he gets greater glory from saving the foremost of sinners, evidently, as opposed to trying to save the people who think they don't need it. God's going to do it, and he'll use you to do it. And it will only come from the overflow of the joy that comes from that statement. We talked about this, uh, we talked about this in, the psalm, in the first 10 Psalms. If, if God hasn't saved you from much, right? Think about Jonah crying out from the depths. If God hasn't saved you from much, you won't go to many. If I say Jesus loves you, or Jesus loves me, and that doesn't surprise you, then you won't be surprised enough to tell anyone about it. And the reason this gospel isn't fruitful in your life is because this hasn't really sunk deep. I want you to see, his steadfast love endures forever. He has steadfast love towards people who are far from him, who rebel against him. He fulfills his promises through people who would rather do things their own way. Well, see, here's the catch, and this is where I want to end, is like we, we often stumble on that idea of worship. And this, this was helpful for me as uh, C.S. Lewis even wrote a reflection on the Psalms. He's published this fantastic resource, and he stumbled over worship because he was like, this worship thing is, is, is really tricky. And he said whenever people would say that God deserves glory, he said he would struggle with it because he pictured glory or uh, or, or like majesty as like a compliment. And so he pictured like a woman who was, who was just like insecure and looking into the mirror and fawning over compliments. And he says that something messed him up. He says, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. So the most obvious thing about praise, I didn't understand. He says, I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless, sometimes, even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought into check. I, I like that phrase because that sticks at most people who get together in a worship service, call themselves Christians, and look miserable, right? It's maybe you. Like, okay, there, there's clearly something missing. Well, here, here's this good news. In fact, the world rings with praise everywhere. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers praising their favorite poets, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, haha. <laughs> praise of the weather, of wines, of dishes, of actors, of motors, of horses, of colleges, of countries, of historical personages, of children. This one stings 20th century and 21st century parents. Praise of flowers, of mountains, of rare stamps, of rare beetles. Praise even sometimes of politicians or scholars. I didn't notice how even the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised the most. While the cranks, the misfits, the malcontents praised things the least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they also spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Don't miss that. In the same way, he noticed that as men spontaneously praise what they value, they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. You hear the words of the nations? Praise God. No, seriously, praise God, all of you. The na- join us in this. If you don't believe this, find the grandparent that has not shown anybody a picture of their, of their grandkids, right? They don't exist. Right, put that on your put that on your wish list because they love they love to show you pictures of the grandkids, right? They're not like, oh no, I have to show them. Um, they, they, would you please, please, right? This 
This is normal. In the same way, spontaneous, they spontaneously praise what they value. They spontaneously urge us to join them in the praise. They say things like, isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? You see, the psalmist in telling everyone to praise God, the psalmists, multiple, telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards to the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help but do about every single thing that we value. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but actually completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. I want you to see this. The reason God seeks our praise is not because he won't be complete, like he needs the compliment from us. The reason God seeks our praise isn't because he needs it. The reason God seeks our praise is because we need it. And in seeking our praise, we will not have satisfaction until we give him that praise. Don't miss it. You talk about what you love, you love what you talk about. And the thing that's being held out here is of infinite and matchless worth and value. Oh, friend, we're not meant to be guilted into worshiping and loving God. We're meant to be lulled into loving God for what he's actually worth. And the thing that you're currently worshiping, remember what I told you, extol, like exuberantly, passionately, exalt, right? I want you to define it. So here's what I would ask you to think about. What's the thing that makes you the happiest and the saddest? What's the thing that grants you the greatest joy? What's the thing that gives you the greatest frustration? Because, friend, that's the thing you actually value. That's the thing that you worship. It is the source, it is the object of your exaltation. You extol it. You exuberantly and emotionally, passionately are excited about it or frustrated by it. And whatever that thing is, that's the thing you worship. Oh, friend, it will fail. It will fail. It will fail miserably. And I have good news for you. The great and steadfast love toward us endures forever. You can trust him because the thing that you think is really awesome, when it fails we'll find that God has offered to us something free in Jesus Christ that lasts forever. His love is demonstrated for the sinner who, while in their sin and while in the death of their own trespasses, he's sent to be sacrificed on our behalf. This is a good news for us. Don't be guilted into exalting Jesus. Recognize he's just the only thing that deserves it anyway. He's the only thing that deserves it in the first place. It means that the overflow of the gospel to our mission in the world is ultimately unsatisfying unless it comes as an overflow in praise. The thing that you glorify and exalt and love the most is the thing that you will tell the world about. So, will you believe and overflow with this thing and be obedient? Or will you rebel? And will you overflow with joy for something else?
friend, there is steadfast and unending love and unending joy and hope and pleasure forever and ever when you see and have your eyes open to, believe, and put your trust in this, this thing that God has freely given to you in Jesus Christ. Let's begin to respond to that in prayer. Would you just bow your head with me? We're going to pray together.